The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Right, we're taking a break from the Gospel of Mark for two Sundays as we're going to be looking at Psalm 22 the next two weeks. And uh, <clears throat> Psalm 22 is very similar to Isaiah 53, whereas when you hear those two terms, if you're familiar at all with the Bible, you think those are the big ones that prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament. It's kind of like if I was to tell you that there was a summer that um, I used to skateboard out in front of the World Trade Center. Now, I wasn't very good, but some of my guys I was with, I mean, they could do some great tricks on the handrails right out in front of the World Trade Center. Now, as I start talking about World Trade Center, you're instantly now trying to process how old I am because you can't think about the World Trade Center apart from what? 9-11-2001. Well, this was back in 90 that I was actually skateboarding out there. So, long time ago. So, you can't talk about World Trade Center without thinking about 9-11. You can't think about Psalm 22 without jumping and catapulting to Jesus. And I want us to actually look at both. Because as you think about this psalm, <clears throat> before I read it, I just want to say a couple things. Because I'm actually, as we read it, we're going to kind of walk through it. There's a lot of people that say, well, this psalm is really just about David. And then there are other people that say, no, this psalm is just really all about Jesus. What's the answer? The answer is there's a human author, David, who's writing acutely about an innocent sufferer himself, who is suffering as an innocent sufferer, and he's writing a lament for us to know how to suffer and how to, how to deal with our sufferings before God. But there's also a divine author that's speaking through David, and that author would be the Holy Spirit. So just as Jesus is fully God and fully man, these scriptures are fully man and fully God. They're 100% man, and he uses those authors, and he uses David writing this. But there's also a, as we like to talk about, this rock will skip. This plane lands more than once. And when it lands, ultimately, it is ultimately referring to something a thousand years down the road about Jesus, who is the ultimate innocent sufferer par excellence. He's the perfect sufferer. He's the greater David, the greater dynasty that we're talking about, and it ultimately is pointing to Jesus. Now, as we walk through this psalm, the big shift is in verse 21, and, and all leading up to verse 21a is all about torment and turmoil. And suffering. And from 21 to the end, which we'll mainly look at next week, from 21 to the end of the psalm, from 21b, is all triumph and thanksgiving. And so we'll get to the more of the triumph, obviously, next week with the resurrection. But I would say Psalm 22, verses 1 to 21a, is all about the cross ultimately, and then 20, 21b through the rest is all about the resurrection and what Christ has accomplished for us. 
So keep in mind that David's suffering as an innocent sufferer as we read this, but for David, much of this is a perceived forsakenness. It's a perceived piercing of his hand and feet. It's a perceived that he's being poured out like water. It's perceived that he is experiencing all of these things, even the division of his garments. But for Jesus, it's all literal. It all literally did happen to him. Ray Steadman, who's now with the Lord, he wrote this years ago. He said, just picture this, that we all know that November 22nd, 1963, <clears throat> that President JFK was assassinated in Dallas, Texas while riding down Dallas Street on a motor car. He says, suppose there had been in existence a document which predicted this event and which we knew to have been written in A.D. 963. And that was about the time of the height of the Byzantine Empire, which most of the Western world was ruled by Constantinople. Much of Europe was only sparsely inhabited by barbarian tribes, and America was not yet discovered. <clears throat> Suppose that a document had been prepared in that ancient day, which predicted that a time would come when a man of great prominence, head of a great nation, would be riding down a street of a large city in a metal chariot not drawn by horses and would suddenly and violently die from the penetration of his brain by a little piece of metal hurled from a weapon made of wood and iron aimed at him from the window of a tall building and that his death would have a worldwide effect and cause worldwide mourning. You can imagine with what awe such a document would be held today. Such a prediction would be similar to what we have here in Psalm 22. And so let's consider Psalm 22 that much of this we would say that David is actually, um, is Acts 2.31 says that David was a prophet. He foresaw and spoke of the Christ. So let's just begin at the beginning. Hear these first couple verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry to you by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. And so what I want you to see from the get-go is that David is, is, we want to quickly catapult ahead, but start with David. David is going back and forth with the I, I and me statements, and then they're going to move to the you statements. So just follow. Verses one and two is all about David and his exquisite pain. He's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry to you, but you do not answer me. And by night, I find no rest. It's very personal. But then he's going to switch to the you section. And you have three you sections. They're going to be verses 3 to 5, 9 to 11, and 19 to 21. And the you sections are remembering but, but you, God, deliver your people. There's, there's kind of this, you know, when we, we suffer and we're innocent sufferers, we, we cry out to God, God delivers his people. And so the psalm is going to switch to a you section. So in verses 3 to 5, David says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted <clears throat> and were not put to shame. And so we see this formula of reminding God that in days of old, you delivered your people when they cried to you and when they trusted you. Notice three times they trusted you. Twice in verse 4, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted. And then again in verse 5, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. 
And so each time they're delivered. And so David will actually experience this vindication that he's praying about in the land of the living. He will follow the pattern of the innocent sufferer who was delivered and rescued and not put to shame. But as it catapults ahead, Jesus, the ultimate innocent sufferer and the ultimate subject of this psalm, he trusts his father. He cries out, but he's not rescued, and he is put to shame. So now back to the eye section. And they start to become more exquisite in their, in their description of the pain and of the suffering. And so back to the eye section. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And so we see again that David is describing his innocent suffering and the acuteness of it, of how he is actually treated by his enemies. How is he treated by them? Well, verse 6 and 7 tell us that scorned, despised, mocked. He's scorned by mankind, verse 6, despised by the people, and all who see me mock me. And then David's going to illustrate what the scorn looks like, what the despised really is, and what the mocking really looks like. And it's first body language in verse 7, and then the actual language, verse 8. But the body language is they make mouths at me. They make faces at me. Body language communicates a lot, doesn't it? They make faces. They make mouths at me. They're wagging their heads, which Matthew 27 actually says. And, and, then, they're, and then they're throwing back verses 4 and 5 in his face. Where's your trust? Where's your deliverance? I thought this was the pattern for the faithful. You're faithful, you trust him, and you'll be delivered. How come you're not being delivered? You see, the crowd assumes with Jesus that he's the problem. He can't deliver himself. And his father isn't delivering him either. So obviously, you're the problem, Jesus. You see, the whole passage just kind of catapults past David, and you can't read this without thinking of what we just read in Matthew 27, where we get these three groups of people. The three groups of people are all united, hurling their insults at Jesus. They're doing exactly what verse 6 to 8 describes. We have the two thieves on the cross. You have the crowd that's just coming in and out of Jerusalem. And then you have the religious elites, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. You could say it's just like today. And so... You have these three groups of people. You have the majority. They're just coming. They're just working. They're doing their thing. Then you've got the lowlifes, those who are truly the criminals. And then you've got the elites, the spiritual people that we would tend to hold up and put on a pedestal. And all three groups are all coming together. And the majority is all the passerbys, those coming in and out of the city. They raise their voices and they say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're the son of God and come down from the cross. But then the chief priests, scribes, and elders mocked him. And they go to verse 42 of Matthew 27. And they cry out, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I'm the son of God. And the last and the least, the two thieves. In verse 44, Matthew 27, it says, the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. 
Now, we know one thief later repents of his reviling. And that leads us back to the next you section. It's becoming more exquisite in its pain. And so this next section is how God delivers his people and saves the righteous from the wicked. And we see it again in verse 9 to 11. David is reminding God of his faithfulness of old. And this is what he says. Yet you are he who took me from the wound. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you've been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there's none to help. And the section ends with, Trouble is near. Probably make a good title for the message. Trouble's near. Because David is reminding God throughout this psalm three times. He's crying out. Twice the petition is, be not far from me. You see it in verse 11? He cries out, be not far from me. And then in verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. And David is wonderful, wonderfully appealing to this idea that God is our refuge and strength, finish the sentence, and ever-present help in times of trouble. And yet he, so he's crying out, don't be far off because trouble's near. But God is nearer still. And that's what David experiences in this psalm. God shows up. He delivers David, spares his life from Saul multiple times. But how about the ultimate innocent sufferer? Was that Jesus' experience? David's delivered. Jesus is not. Jesus experiences the mocking, the spitting, the scourging, the punching, the crown of thorns, the crowds mocking him on the crowd from the cross. And, and Matthew records all of this. And we are told now from the sixth hour, there's darkness over the land until the ninth hour. So that's from noon to three. And Jesus is fulfilling this passage all the way back to Amos 8, where God says when he's going to bring judgment, I'll cause, I'll cause it to be dark at noon. Well, how's God cause it to be dark at noon? Because judgment has come down on his son. And at the ninth hour, Jesus has been silent for three hours. But at the ninth hour, he cried out or he shrieks, he shouts which is really hard to do because he doesn't even have to push up and all the sentences, all the seven sayings are very short sayings because you can't say a whole lot when your lungs are filling up. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's, he's bringing back the first part of the psalm. Why are you so far from saving me is Psalm 21, 22, 1b. It's the Three times in this psalm, why are you so far? The trouble is right here. They're all mocking me. The passerbys, the thieves, everybody is mocking me. And, and you, God, have been far off. You haven't come to save me. You haven't delivered me. And Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus doesn't experience the deliverance like David did. David experienced it in the land of the living. Jesus isn't going to experience this until he's raised from the dead. And so this next section is going to lead us to the wild beasts, and that's in verses 12 to 21. So children, see if you can see the animals and the, the wild be beasts that are describing humanity at its worst, not even being described as humans but as animals. Many bulls encompass me. 
Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravenous and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my God, come quickly to my aid. Deliver me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You see, long before the Wizard of Oz was crying out about lions, tigers, and bears, oh my, David is worried about lions, bulls, and dogs. And there's a nice chiasm for, for you here as the, they're mentioned in verse 12, we've got bulls, verse 13, we got a lion, and verse 16, we got dogs, but then as the section ends, it's in reverse order. You have the dogs in verse 20, the lion in 21, and then the, the wild oxen or with the horns, which would be the bull at the end. So you have this description fully for you in chias- chiastic fashion of humanity being described as lion, bulls, and dogs. This is not what you would call like a house dog, you know? I remember reading years ago, Years ago now, Peter Jenkins' book called Walk Across America, and this is a guy that left his home in New York and decided he was going to hike all the way down to the um, Mississippi River, or all the way, and then he's going to walk all the way west uh, out to past Colorado, but he leaves his home and he's just going to walk, and so he's on the Appalachian Trail for a long time, but and he has his dog with him. It's a 105-pound Alaskan Malamute. And this Malamute saves his life twice. And the first, one of the times is he was going to freeze to death. He was completely freezing in the snow. And he just fell down to take a nap. And he would have never woken up again. And the dog just relentlessly kept licking him in the face and wouldn't let him sleep. The other time, though, was they're in the middle of nowhere. And these pack dogs come out of nowhere and they're hungry, and these six dogs are, gonna, are trying to, they're going to kill him. And the dog, this Alaskan Malamute, takes on all six of these pack dogs and fends off his master and saves his life. And the saddest part of the book is the dog gets run over by a car. He's, <laughs> he's on like this, you know, these hippies living in the middle of nowhere, and they're in some field and on a pickup truck or something, and the dog got run over. And I mean, I was crushed. Like, the poor Alaskan Malamute had saved his life twice, and then goes down. All right, that was an aside. You get the idea, is that not all dogs are nice dogs like your house dogs, okay? Some dogs want to eat you. A lion's going to eat you. Bulls with horns, that is not going to be a pleasant thing. And what Jesus is describing here, or David, is he's describing figuratively what, what Jesus experiences literally. And what's being described here is Jesus is ex- he's exhausted and emaciated on the cross. My strength is dried up like the potsherd. He is exhausted. My tongue sticks to my jaws. He, he cried out from the cross, I thirst, because he's literally, he, he is 
dying from thirst. His, jo- his, his bones are out of joint. He's poured out like water. And then he describes the piercing of his hands and his feet, which literally happened to him. And so Jesus is exhausted. He's emaciated. He can see all of his bones. He's, he's stretched out and, and skewered. And then, literally, the, div- the dividing up of his garments is a big deal because all four Gospels mention it. They all mention this casting lots for his garments. But John wants to draw attention that this is a direct fulfillment of this very passage in Psalm 22. John writes this, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture that says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Jesus is crying out. And at the end of verse 21, he doesn't get to experience that last part. He doesn't get to experience, you have rescued me. We don't get to that till next week. David is wonderfully delivered in the land of the living, but Jesus is not. What is going on here? What is going on in this whole psalm? How do you make sense of an innocent sufferer suffering this way? Not only from all the people, the the crowds, the chief priests, the thieves, but ultimately from God himself. And I just have to tell you, theologians go all over the place on this. This is one of the hardest passages in Scripture to reconcile and get your mind around. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you just start to think about that and really start to think about it, which, her, which heresy are you moving towards? Because there's a lot of theologians that want to say, it is impossible that the father could have really punished his son like this because the son is the infinite love of the father. He's been in his bosom. These two have, God's delight is in his son and he always is loving his son. This is my beloved son whom I love. And so there's part of you that wants to say that that's impossible, that God could pour out his wrath. And if he pours out his wrath and there's complete darkness, and there's compl- is there a breaking apart of the hypostatic union? Is, there a, is the Godhead coming apart? Can there literally be a division of the deity and, and, and a splitting of the Trinity? That would be heresy. That would be a problem. Okay, and our brains start to not compute where that's going because how can the Son of how can God actually die? theologically impossible because he is life. He is acity. He, he's always existed. He's always had life. So how can God die? But on the other hand, how can you divide God's humanity from his divinity and say, well, this happens to his humanity, but not to his divinity. That would be an early church heresy to divide the two. They're inseparable. They're always together. You cannot divide them. So which heresy are you going to commit? Do you, do you see the problem? It is greater than your human minds can get your arms around. You have to accept it here in your heart. You have to understand that God in his great, great love for humanity, it's God who's bringing this about. It's, it's not, 
I think there's a natural tendency to think, God doesn't like me, the son likes me, the son has to come save me and save me from God who doesn't like me because I'm a sinner. This is what the Bible says. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The one who would turn God's wrath away. The one who would appease the wrath of the Father where justice would be accomplished so that the very last words of the psalm would be fulfilled. How does the psalm end? The psalm just ends, he has done it. And it's incomplete. What is it? Well, what's Jesus' last words from the cross? It is finished. It's almost the same exact idea in the in the. the communicating to us that what he has come to do is to accomplish our salvation so that he could be just and the justifier. God has to punish sin. He's infinitely holy. He's so holy, you can't understand it. I can't understand it. How do you teach, how do you teach algebra to an ant? How do I teach people like us today that God is so holy that the angels have to cover their feet and their eyes because he's too holy to look on. He's too holy to look on and see and live. Everything about us is stained by evil. Every thought that we have is still has a tinge of evil. Every, every area that we look is still has evil. And we think God is holy. Well, what's the big deal? It's just a little sin. What's the big deal? Well, we see it's a big deal. Look what God is doing. His infinite love for his only son, and now his son is experiencing the wrath of the Father, that our punishment is falling on Jesus. Listen to this. John Stott put it like this. It cannot be emphasized too strongly that God's love is the source, not the consequence of the atonement. God does not love us because Christ died for us, Christ died for us because God loved us. If it's God's wrath which needs to be propitiated, it's God's love which did the propitiating. The atonement did not procure grace, it flowed from grace. And so as David Wells, who used to be a Gordon Conwell, said, in Pauline thought, man is alienated or separated from God by sin. And God is alienated from man by wrath. It's the substitutionary death of Jesus, of Christ, that sin is overcome and wrath is averted, turned away from us, so that God can look on man without displeasure and man can look on God without fear. Sin is expiated, taken away, and God is propitiated. His wrath is appeased. It's poured out on his son. And so God is, himself is, is at the heart of our answer to all these questions about divine propitiation. It is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated, God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating, and God himself in the person of his son who died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it his own self and his son when he took our place and died for us. 
in all the other religions, or I would say in most of the other religions, you're the object. You do the appeasing. It's on you. You go and appease him. And in idolatry, you're going to have to sacrifice something to serve the God because the gods are never satisfied. But in the Christianity, God is the subject and the object. He's the one that's angry towards our sin, but he's the one who satisfies it. He's the object, not you, for those who put their trust and their faith in him, in his work. That's why we come to this table, to be reminded it is finished. It's done. Let's pray together. Open our eyes now, Lord God. Open our mouths wide. May you fill it. May we taste and see that you are good and that it is finished. And may our love for you grow all the more, knowing that we deserved this punishment. We deserve this forever. And we thank you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.